Faith is a gift. That's the message title this morning. Faith is a gift. And um, as I was reading through, it's funny, during the fall seasons, I end up uh, really uh, getting acquainted with the message or with the, the, the scripture for the morning uh, in the deer stand, or actually in the deer blind. Um, I've been hunting out of blinds lately. I'm running the risk of climbing trees and falling out of them, so I just stay low. But uh, anyway, so when I'm in there and things are moving a little slow, I'll uh, open up my, my phone app and I will open up the scripture and I'll read through and I just kind of meditate on the passage that day. And sometimes I'll close my eyes and sometimes deer walk by and I never see them while I'm reading the passage and meditating. I know that because then I look at my trail camera and there was a deer right in front of my stand. So anyway, at least that's what it says. I don't know. So we're going to be looking at faith this morning and we're going to be looking at it as a gift, but I'm going to be doing things just a little bit differently this morning. I thought that before we start that we ought to look at at definitions, that definitions are important. And so, and these definitions will hopefully carry us through the remainder of this chapter. And then hopefully as we explore other texts in scripture, that these definitions will kind of hold true. So our message this morning comes from Hebrews uh, chapter 11, uh, verses one through three. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses one through three. And we're going to be looking at the two things. We're going to be looking at the definition, if you will, of faith as it, as it uh, involves our walk with Christ. And then we're going to look at a very basic example of how this is played out and why it's important. And so uh, we're not going to be going through all the individual characters just yet, but today we'll set the stage for that. So our message passage, our passage this morning. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this, our ancestors were approved. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible." And that's from the CSB. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about some different versions because there are some different versions that use some different words that I think will help explain. For instance, when it says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for. That's an uncommon word. We don't see that word often. Oftentimes we'll read it as confidence. It's the confidence in, uh, in, of what is hoped for. So we're going to be looking at that and why, uh, why this text uses, uses that word. Um, and we'll explain that, and I think it will all make sense here in a little bit. But before we get into that, I want to talk about just some in, the importance of definitions. And so as we read literature, we understand that the definitions of words, the meanings of words matter, right? If we don't understand what's on the page, the words that are on the page, it really is just a, you know, a, a set of pages with words on a page that don't really mean anything. And so those definitions really matter. The meaning of an individual word is tied to the meaning of a sentence, which is then tied to the meaning of a paragraph, which helps us understand the meaning and the purpose and the context of a chapter or a book. Now, why do I say that? Because if we misunderstand one word in Scripture, then that can color our view of Scripture in its entirety. And so, number one, we got to understand the way the definition of a word, and then we got to understand the way a particular author is using that word in the text. And so these definitions obviously can be contextual. 
All right. And we see that in our world. And so we see that certain words have entirely different meanings depending on geography. All right. So let me just give you three examples of that. All right. One is football. All right. Now in America, football is a game where a ball is passed to receivers or handed off to running backs and grown men tackle one another. And then they get up and they try to run or throw the ball again. In Europe, it is a game where a ball is kicked and grown men run and then they breathe on one another. One falls over, cries, a red flag is thrown, and the whole world stops and laughs at them. All right? We know that is soccer because we don't want to deface the game of football with the same word, right? So that's football. Another word is kiss. In America, and this was new to me, in America, the word kiss means to demonstrate physical affection with your lips, right? Right. Well, um, in Sweden, it means to, it means to pee. And so, like, I'm going to go kiss. That means I'm going to go pee. And so, anyway, I guess I can use that word while I'm preaching, right? All right. Anyway, and yeah, I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, all right. So, and then the third one, I did try to keep this clean. I want you to know, right? There were some German words like the one I'm getting ready to use, not this one in particular. I was like, I'm not sharing that on Sunday morning because I don't know where that's going. Uh, let's just say the word wagon means a lot of different things depending on where you're at, okay? But the word mist in America means like a fog or a drizzle, but in Germany, it means manure. And so completely different context, right? And we know this, uh, that in Great Britain, they use words that are just, they're just funny, right? My sister and brother-in-law, they lived in, uh, in England for uh, four or five years, something like that. And there's some different words over there, right? Okay. And so... That's right. I, I, hey, I'm here. I'm here. So all the bowel movements, right? So from a biblical perspective, uh, meanings of words are, tire, are tied to the entire context of Scripture. And so misunderstanding these words can really throw us off. So what I want us to do this morning, and this is going to sound like, why are we, is this an English lesson? It's not. We're, we're, I, I hope that this, this causes us to worship this morning. That's the way, because I did. As, as I was writing this and putting this together, and I was looking at these different words and looking through Scripture, I was just so energized by what God has done, and these words kind of highlighted the work that God has done throughout, uh, throughout history. And so if we misunderstand words like faith or salvation or hope, we could misunderstand how we are saved and God's role in our salvation. And so this is critical. And so as we introduce chapter 11, what I want to do is I want to go through some of these definitions and I want to talk about how they're used in Scripture. I'm going to share a little bit of Scripture and how these are used. And then we're going to walk through. And then what I'm going to do is at the end, I'm going to tie into one example of how the word faith is then used. Okay? So the first word we're going to look at is grace. Now, we all have heard the word grace. We read it often in Scripture. And I'm sure that many of us have, have sort of a working definition of grace. And by the way, when I write these definitions here, these are my definitions that I'm trying to work through. I didn't, I didn't look these up on Webster because apparently you can't trust Webster now either. Um, and so that stuff's a moving target. But the idea is I try to come up from scripture what these words might mean. So not what a, the typical American lingo would be, but the way I see God or the, the God inspiring the authors to use these words. So the first is grace. And, and I have listed this as unmerited which you all know that phrase, 
unmerited favor. Not an unmerited gift, but unmerited favor. All right? Grace, and this is kind of the way I see this, and I take this from Ephesians chapter 2, grace is God's positive, loving, and reconciling orientation towards us. Okay? Grace has nothing to do with us doing anything. Grace is explicitly God's unmerited favor, His love, His positive orientation towards us. Whereas God is showing us grace, that's how He is orienting Himself to us. Okay? God shows us grace by demonstrating mercy. That's one of his ways of demonstrating grace by showing mercy. And so grace and mercy are, are very closely tied together. Uh, God also demonstrates grace by providing faith. And so let me share this in scripture here. You've heard this before. I've used this passage numerous times. For you are saved by grace through faith. Those are two different things. Grace and faith are not the same thing. You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is, a, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Now, I've gone through this, and I have checked this with other theologians and other commentaries, and on the whole, most conservative theologians, we've often been shared that, that grace is the gift that we're talking about here. Most theologians don't believe that. They believe that Paul is referring to faith as the gift. Because of God's grace, his loving orientation towards us, he gives us faith. Now, what does that mean? That means that we cannot have biblical faith unless God gives it. It just can't happen. Now, we're going to discuss what the definition of faith here is in a minute, and you, this will all come together. It'll make more sense. But the idea from right now is this, is that God it has nothing to do with our work, with our effort. There is nothing that you can do to merit God's grace, his loving orientation to us. It is just of his goodwill that he would lovingly show us and demonstrate grace. We are saved by God's unmerited favor towards us, which results in the gift of faith. And so this is in stark contrast to us earning our salvation. Now, why do I bring that up? Because if you read through chapter 11, and if you read through the Old Testament, you could misunderstand the author's intentions and believe that Abraham and Isaac and Noah and Enoch and these others somehow merited the faith that they received from God, that they merited that, and therefore they earned their place, uh, their approval, if you will, of God. And that's not the case at all. What we see is, is that grace is unmerited and faith is the result. It is the gift that God gives. So that's the first definition. We all on the same page? Y'all aren't bored yet, right? Okay, all right. Number two, salvation. Salvation. Let's, let's define salvation, right? Let's just define. Now this seems, well, isn't that simple? Well, maybe, maybe not. So let's just talk about salvation. What is salvation? Here's what I call it. 
It's our rescue. It is our rescue. It is our rescue from what? Some would say from sin. That's true. It's our rescue from sin. I would go a step further. It is our rescue from the wrath of God. That's what it is. It is our rescue from the wrath of God. Without salvation, you will suffer the consequences of, consequences of sin, which is God's wrath. In some ways, you could say it this way. God is saving us, rescuing us from himself, from his wrath that he will pour out. From a biblical perspective, salvation is an event, meaning you are saved. Charlotte was saved. There was a moment where Debbie was saved. All right? So it's an event, but it's also a process, meaning that Charlotte is in the process of being saved. Debbie is in the process of being saved. It's not just an event. It is also a process. So God rescues us, but we're in the process of being rescued from our slavery to sin. So if you will, he, is, he has rescued us, saved us from his wrath. And he is in the process of rescuing, rescuing us from our slavery to sin, pulling us out of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preach to you, catch that. You are being saved if you hold on to the message in which I preach to you. It speaks of perseverance. It speaks of endurance. If we just view salvation as a moment in history and then everything out of that is divorced from salvation... At that point, you can, it's sort of that once saved, always saved, I can go and live like a heathen, but I've got this salvation in my history and I'm all okay. But that's not what the text says. It says you are being saved if you maintain the message, if you keep to the gospel. It speaks of endurance. Salvation is an event in a believer's life, but it's also this constant reality that God is keeping us saved. I think I've said this before, but we should wake up every morning and not simply thank God that we woke up, but thank God that he kept us in his saving grace. That we should just maintain that and just remember that the only reason we are still saved is because of God's good favor. That's the only reason. And I said this last week or two weeks ago, and this is a quote from, I believe, uh, I believe it was John MacArthur. He said, if you could lose your salvation... You already would have. You already would have. Because we are incapable of keeping what God has given us without God keeping it for us. God's doing that work. So remember, when we talk about this rescue that brings to mind these like stories of, you know, the knight in shining armor and the damsel in distress, and you know, the knight comes in and and saves the damsel from the dragon, right? And we might picture that God is this knight in shining armor, or Jesus is this knight in shining armor armor, and and we're the damsel in distress, and and sorry, Paul, but uh, but you know, and and then the dragon is, you know, the sin that we're being saved from. Folks. That's wrong. That's a wrong-headed view of what's happening here, okay? God is our rescuer through Christ, but this is the trick here. 
God is the hero of this story. But we are not the damsel. We're not the damsel. We are the villain. We are the villain in this story. But what's beautiful about this that Hollywood won't write about because it just doesn't meet our soft uh, personalities. God is the hero. We are the villain. And in this story, God saves the villain. God saves the villain. It's a beautiful testimony. A beautiful testimony. See, if we're the damsel, then that means somehow we've earned God's salvation. We've earned the right for God to step in and save us. But we never earned it. We are the villain. We are depraved. We are constantly at odds with God. And so here comes God, the hero, stepping in and saying, I'm going to save you from yourself and from my wrath. You are the villain, but I am going to lay my life down for you anyway. It's a beautiful picture of God's grace. That's salvation. Hope. Hope. What, how do we define hope? It's sort of like one of those things, like you know it when you see it type thing, like the color blue. I've described it as this positive future and expectational desire. Okay? Where you're looking into the future... And you are, it's a positive thing that you're looking forward to and expecting, okay? That you're hoping for, right? Rarely do we hope for something negative unless it's against an enemy, right? So let's not do that. But I mean, we're hoping for something positive. We're hoping for something good. And so hope is this positive or desirable expectation from a biblical standpoint that God will fulfill his promises. That's what hope is. This is different than hoping that the Braves are going to win the World Series, which is always tied to significant doubt. All right? It just is. Hope is built on the precedent that God answers his promises, that we have, I'm going to use this word, confidence in God. Now, that's leaching over into the definition of faith, and so I want to pause for, on that. But let's look at hope as this kind of positive desire and expectation. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, your work, remember that word, produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see here that faith is different than hope. Faith has something to do with work, with actions. Hope is what motivates us to keep on keeping on. It's the hope that God will fulfill his promises that causes us to endure. Folks, how in the world would we maintain this Christian life if we lacked hope? How would we be able to do it? There's just no way. If we did not have the hope, the, the, the positive expectation that God would do what he said he would do, there is no way we could keep on with this Christian life. There is no way that we would be able to sacrifice what God calls us to sacrifice. Worldly desires, clinging on to sin, all those things. Were it not for hope that there's something better, there's something looking forward to, that there is a reward that we are racing towards. 
And that is that hope. Hope is built on trust. Hope is built on God's consistency, and our hope is demonstrated by our faith. And that's where we get into today's discussion. So let me read this passage again. Now, faith is the reality, and some versions say confidence, of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. What you will see in chapter 11 and what you see throughout the text is that faith, faith is hope and confidence tied to action. You cannot have faith without hope. Okay? You can't have faith without hope, biblically speaking. So you must have this hope and confidence, but that faith is always tied to action. And we're going to see this, all right? How do we know that Noah had faith? He built an ark. That's how we know he had faith. No one's spending that much energy and time building something because a voice in the sky told him to, unless he has faith that God is going to fulfill those promises. See, the faith is tied to action. You may say, well, I have hope. Well, I can't see Debbie's hope. I can't see my sister's hope. I can't see David's hope, but I can see faith. Why? Because it's tied to action. And this is why James says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And this is why the author is tying so much into faith, demonstrating that the faith is tied to these actions that they are accomplishing. Now, the reason why we're going through this exercise is this, is that if you didn't understand these definitions and these terms and the way the author uses them, you might understand that faith is somehow some sort of merited work, uh, uh, merited work that we're doing on our own behalf that wasn't gifted by God. That's not the case at all. The reason that Noah was able to build the ark in the way that he did and demonstrate the faith that he had is because God gifted it to him. Folks, I don't know anybody who has the faith that's strong enough to do what Noah did unless it is some sort of supernatural faith. That's the only thing that can lead to that. Faith is the objective reality of the confidence we have in God that our hope is fulfilled, is going to be fulfilled with his promises. And so because of what God has done in the past, and because of who God has revealed himself to be, we have the confidence that he will do what he has promised he will do. Now, why does the, this version use the word reality? Because confidence is not a wrong word. That word in the Greek has also translated as confidence as well. So why don't we translate it as confidence? Because confidence can waver. Confidence is not necessarily tied to action. I could say that I have confidence that the Braves are going to win the World Series. I could say that. But I'm not going to Las Vegas and betting on it. I don't have that much confidence. But when it comes to faith, our confidence becomes a reality because of the work that we're putting into it. That not only am I saying I have confidence... It is an objective truth that I have confidence because I am stepping forward out on this limb and I am going to demonstrate my faith by action, by works, so that others might see my faith. Faith is always tied to action and faith always produces fruit. 
So when somebody tells me, I, I, I have hope, I have hope in the Lord. And then you ask them, do you have faith in the Lord? I have faith in the Lord. Then your next question should be this, or next exhortation would be this, show me. You say you have faith, show me, like I'm from Missouri. Reveal to me that you have faith. How do we know that the people in the Old Testament were faithful or unfaithful? It's because we see it. We see it played out in their actions. Now, is there anybody with perfect faith? No. No, even Noah did not have perfect faith. But the faith and the confidence that he had in the Lord was greater than any doubt that he had. And that's the key. See, when our doubt overshadows our confidence in the Lord, that's when our faith wavers. That's when we start serving man and stop serving God. Faith is not something that can be earned. Faith is a gift. And the evidence that God has been gracious towards us is that he gives us faith. And so as sinners, we are completely unable to have the confidence in God to obey and serve God. So how are we able, so we can have hope because of God and what he has done, right? And his fulfilled promises. How do we have the faith to step out and have the confidence to obey in physical, tangible, physical, tangible terms? How do we have that faith? Because we have confidence. How, where do we get that confidence from? From God. God is the one that gives us that confidence. It's not something that, it, well, let me put it this way. It is something that is built over time. Hopefully, as we grow in Christ, so does our confidence in the work of God. But it's not like we're sitting here milling it, right? It's something that over time, God is instilling greater and greater amounts of faith. And so as sinners, we are completely unable to have confidence in God to obey and serve God. But because of God's unmerited favor towards us, grace, he gives us the effectual confidence in himself, faith, that is required to serve and obey him. And so by this grace and through this faith, we are saved, and this gives us the necessary hope to continue to persevere in the faith. And so that gives us that endurance, that motivation, that encouragement to continue to endure. Now, I've said all that. We're done with definitions. Are we all on the same page? Now let's put it all in practice. Let's look at this very first line. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Because, right, we don't have faith in something that we see, right? That's not faith. It, you can't say a week after the World Series that the Braves have won and say, I have faith that the Braves are going to win the World Series. Well, that's not faith. That's reading a newspaper, all right? That's keeping up to date. Well, you know, I, I, I can't, I, you're not going to say I have faith after Jesus comes for the second time, returns, and say, I have faith that Jesus is going to return. No, it's too late. Jesus has already returned. Faith is believing and trusting and having confidence in something before it's happened. We haven't wrapped our minds around it yet. And so it says here that faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what has not yet seen, is not seen. For by this, our ancestors were approved. It was by that faith that our ancestors were approved. That gift of God, they were approved. So Abraham, Noah, and others, they were not approved or saved by their works. They were approved by their faith that was demonstrated through their works, 
that revealed their confidence in the one true God. So remember when God comes to, to Abram and tells him, I want you to leave this land and go to the land that I have prepared for you. There's no wavering mentioned in the text. Folks, Abram is not a believer at this time but beforehand, all right? It wasn't like he was worshiping Yahweh before this happened. It is likely that Abram was a pagan coming from a background. But what does God do? God saves him and gives him the faith to step out away from everything that he knows and moves into this new land where he can worship the one true God. Well, what gives Abram the confidence to be able to do that? Just say, okay, I'll do it. Well, God does that through faith. That's the only confidence. That's the only place where that confidence comes from. In every example that we're going to study over the next few weeks, we're going to witness this extreme confidence in the Lord and that He's faithful. And so did they exhibit perfect faith? No. And we're going to see that, and neither will we, all right? And the reason is, is because sin wrecks our confidence. And so our faith wavers when we allow sin to step in, and it wrecks our confidence, because what happens is that sin is the reality that our confidence is more in ourselves than in God. That's what sin is, is that we're willing to accept the promises of sin over the promises of God. And so we let that in, and then all of a sudden our confidence wavers. And that happens to every one of us. When we sin, that's when our faith is starting to waver. But then we have greater faith that God has saved us from our sins. So what do we do? We repent. We repent and we believe again. And that's why verse 3 is the launch pad for this tremendous chapter. So we're going to finish off by just walking through this because the author says this. This is his first example. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. So he says that. Now, that's a, here's what's strange about this. Everything else in this chapter... Okay? There might be an exception in here, but the majority of what's in this chapter uses very specific examples like Abraham, Noah, Abel, and others to demonstrate faith. But then you have this very first example that doesn't mention a name of some sort of heroic faith figure in the Scripture. It says we. It says we. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Let me just kind of paraphrase this. We have faith that God and God alone created everything that we see. And he did not, see, he did not create it from pre-created or pre-existing material. He created it from nothing, ex nihilo. He created it from nothing meaning that God did not just create the universe. He created the matter in which the universe is made up of. All right? Now, why is this important to faith? Because if, if this is not true, if it's not true that by a word, God can create everything that we see, if that's not true, then we can't have the confidence in anything else in Scripture. And it's sort of like this. If we don't have the confidence that Jesus died for our sins and that he really was raised on the third day, all right, if we don't have confidence in that, which the Bible without apology attests that that is true, 
then how can we believe anything else in Scripture? Or let me go backwards. If we don't believe that God's, that if we don't believe what God says is true here, that God created everything from nothing, but if we say, well, that's just a metaphor, that's not really true, then how do we believe that Jesus really is our Savior? You see how one is hinged on the other? If one's not true, how do we have confidence in the whole thing? Our faith in this one thing will dictate our faith in other things. Because if God fails in one promise, just one, then what prevents him in failing from in any of the others? But our faith is that God is consistently true. Where does this faith come from? Folks, this faith does not come from the world around us. It's not like you're going to get on Twitter or Facebook or CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or some other thing or go to college, oh my gosh, and somehow come out of there with the confidence that God created all things from a matter of a snap of his fingers or a speaking of his word and that Jesus is the son of God. He died and was resurrected three days later. You're not going to get that from the world. That's not the confidence. That is coming from faith that we believe that. But if it is true, then our faith in everything else is justified. Can we prove that it's true? Folks, no, we can't. We can't prove it. I cannot prove to you with physical evidence that all the scientists want, all right, that God created everything out of nothing. I don't have proof for that. Because then it wouldn't be faith. All these individuals looking for a splinter from Noah's Ark up on some sort of mountain. If we only had that boat, if we could find that boat, then people would believe. No, they wouldn't. They would just find something else to doubt. Because it's not about finding evidence. It's about faith. And that faith is a gift of God. Why don't, people some, ha- why don't some people have faith? Because they haven't been given it. They're not going to earn it. There's no way you can earn that level of confidence in God. Only God's gift of faith could cause us to believe something so to the world implausible that God created everything from nothing. And so our confidence is not in the random collision of elements under heat and pressure. And our confidence is not that scientific formulas remain true and consistent. Never mind the fact that these formulas that all of science is built on, and I'm a science guy, all right? I understand these formulas, and I believe that the formulas work. I believe the formulas work so far as God remains consistent. Because at the one moment God stops upholding the universe, folks, all those laws and theories fall away. Every one of them. Some might say when you toss an apple in the sky, it falls. Why? Because of gravity, the law of gravity. And I say, yep. And why does the law of gravity hold true? Because of God. Because God holds all things together. I believe in those laws. I believe in the law of thermodynamics. Why do I believe it? Because our God is consistent. Our God is consistent. And so it's really funny that all the scientists who are trying to disprove God and trying to cause the world to disbelieve in God, their entire careers 
are built upon the fact that our God is consistent in everything that he does. Because if he doesn't, then none of these things work out. None of these things work out. Their careers are dependent upon God. I just find that to be funny. Our confidence is in the God that created something out of nothing. And so the same God that brought an entire universe out of nothing by his word can also bring you from death to life. And and I dare say, I dare say, that's probably God's favorite accomplishment. Bringing dead people to life. I just think God loves doing that. And, and, and here's one of the reasons I would say that. God created one universe. Seven days, created everything that we see, right? And then he was done. God has not stopped raising people from the dead. does it every day. And he loves it because he receives glory from it. He receives glory from it. And that is the faith that we have. And that is our confidence. And that is our hope. And that is our salvation. And every bit of it is by God's grace. Every bit of it is by God's grace. And so how do we apply this? You know, Because they say if, you know, if the preacher doesn't apply, then it's just a Bible study, right? Okay, well, then how do we apply this? Simple. Worship God. Just worshiping. Just thank God, not just for the air that you breathe, but for the life that you have in Christ. And may that give you the hope and the motivation and the consistency to pursue the promises that God has laid out before you and that he has been consistent in answering from age to age. That is the God that we serve. And if we start there, then everything else just kind of starts falling in.